The following podcast contains themes and discussions related to post-traumatic stress disorder. If you or someone you know is struggling with PTSD or mental health concerns, please see the show notes for contacts with support. Listener discretion is advised. The core values and guiding principles of the Royal Australian Regiment are represented in its unwavering commitment to duty, loyalty and selfless sacrifice to the nation. Through its emphasis on dedication, discipline and professionalism, the regiment places the interests of the unit, the army and the nation above all else. Honour, loyalty, sacrifice and dedication to a cause. Duty first. Welcome to Duty First, a podcast about the history of the Royal Australian Regiment, better known as the RAR. Over the next eight episodes, we'll delve into the formation of the RAR, rising from the ashes of World War II into the battlefields of Korea, Vietnam, the Middle East, and much more. Told by members of the regiment who were there, we'll learn about the triumphs, untold sacrifices and unwavering loyalty that makes up Australia's first professional infantry service. Come join us as we enter a world where courage takes centre stage and history comes alive. This is episode one, From the Ground Up. Well, the RAR stands for the Royal Australian Regiment and in the Australian Army, it's the full-time infantry component of the Army. That's His Excellency General David John Hurley. General Hurley has a long, celebrated military career, rising from platoon commander in the 1st Battalion RAR to the Governor-General of Australia, Australia's Head of State, and the Commander-in-Chief of the Australian Defence Force. The battalions are a very important organisation for the Army because it's where main combat capability comes out of that, that unit. What the battalions of the regiment did in, in Korea, Malaya, Borneo, then Vietnam, when I was a youngster, that's what we grew up on. Yeah, when I, when I was at military college and a junior officer and so forth, all my instructors were Vietnam veterans, 99% of them. Uh, when I arrived in uh, one area for my first platoon command, my platoon commander and three section commanders were all Vietnam veterans. So the stories of the regiment and its achievements over the, uh, during that period, we just knew them. Uh, it helps define what the quality of the organisation is and gives you understanding of you are, what you represent and what you're trying to uphold. So it's not just a, a, a history lesson, it, it sort of comes back in you know, when we talk about esprit de corps and so forth, it all builds into those things. So. The Royal Australian Regiment's role in that helps build a bigger picture for the Army as well about who it is and what it's done and how well it's performed or not performed and you know, where were the great battles and who were the, the, the heroes and so forth. It sort of imbues the Army with all that sort of knowledge of itself. It's very important. For 75 years, the RAR has forged a legacy that has made Australia proud. It's protected our country and supported our allies across the world, 
becoming the envy of global powers with its commitment to professionalism, sacrifice, honour and loyalty. I went to 1RER, 1st Battalion, Big Blue One, best battalion in the Army, and so you, you take that on and you uh, have to live up to that, you know, that expectation. Uh, 1RER has this reputation and uh, you've got to be there and you've got to work to that and uphold it. And you don't think about it in those terms, I suppose, when you're younger, but when you're older you do, you're, you're building the legacy for others. It's the identity you take on when you arrive. So my name is Daniel Kieran, Victoria Cross recipient. Corporal Daniel Dan Kieran is one of the most decorated living soldiers from the Royal Australian Regiment. In 2012, he was awarded the Victoria Cross, the highest award in the Australian Honours System for his courageous actions in the Battle of Derapet in Afghanistan in 2010. He is the first member of the RAR to be awarded the Victoria Cross and one of only three living Australians to hold the honour. I knew if I had got shot on the hill, they, they would have come and got me. That wasn't even a question of thought in my head that they wouldn't. I knew they'd come and, and risk their lives as well, no doubt, which I didn't want them to do, but to drag me off the hill as well, right? That, that wasn't even a question. I didn't have to think about that. We'd been through so much in those life and death scenarios that up, up until that point. So I suppose it was ingrained in us. We didn't have to really, uh, really think about it. You were part of something greater than yourself and you knew that. You know, you did it for your mates to the left and to the right of you and, and everyone would do the same thing without question. Duty first is the motto members of the RAR live by. In its simplest form, it means that you are willing to put yourself second to the needs and requirements of the regiment and that of the Australian Army. When you join the battalion, you get your badge. The motto's up there. Just give your badge, duty first. And you think, oh, I wonder what that means. Well, you very soon find out. It means exactly what it says. Uh, you, your life and what you think is important is second to that. And uh, when you think you've got a free period time coming up or you're going to want a weekend and someone comes, no, we've got to do this, uh, you, you might grumble. The common thing that particularly warrant officers and senior NCOs would say to you is, read your cap badge. And that becomes the standard you live by. We become very duty-oriented, a very high sense of duty. And when I'm talking to youngsters who want to join the Defence Force, that's what you'll have to evolve to. That's what's got to be asked of you. When you're in the jungle, equipment before you. Other soldiers, if you're a commander, before you. And it's that sort of same thing. The duty, your duty requires on your equipment functioning. If your rifle doesn't function, you're useless. Doesn't matter how well fed you are and how much sleep you've had, it's useless. So a duty first, the requirements of my job come before my requirements. Uh, you, you only survive on the battlefield if you're ready for it. And that's why these rules, that, that's why this sort of standard is there. It keeps you alive, keeps your soldiers alive. I joined as a kid of 17. You know, my personal ethos, core values, and who I am as a man today is a representative of my time in service and, and the individuals that I've been fortunate enough to come into contact with throughout my time in uniform and the bonds that you forge, certainly with those in the RAR. I know it's similar to other organisations, but I think it's a little bit different in the RAR because of the, the nature of the end state of the work that we have to do on the, on the field of combat, whereby you are absolutely trusting in each other. You are relying on each other. 
and the decisions that you make as an individual have consequences for the greater team um, as a result of those decisions. Uh, as a team member could uh, result in the death of all your mates. Today I was over at Government House Sydney where I was a governor before of New South Wales and as a governor over there you get a coat of arms and on the exterior of the building all the coat of arms are up there in sandstone so they've been carved. Uh, the motto on mine is duty first. Uh, I've lived my life by that since I was 18. So, um, yeah, it's, yeah, I think it's a very succinct way of sort of summing up what soldiering is about. We'll hear more from His Excellency General David Hurley and Dan Kieran VC as we move through this podcast and discover the history of the RAR. Today, we'll go back to 1945 and discover how the RAR rose from the ashes of the Second World War to become Australia's first ever professionalised infantry force. We'll hear from soldiers who were on the ground in Morotai and during the occupation of Japan, as well as on home soil, as the RAR and its purpose came into view, meeting the challenges of its time and preparing to head into the RAR's first theatre of war in Korea. So buckle up as we travel back to 1945, when the world was reeling from the longest and most costly war known to man. Ladies and gentlemen, the Prime Minister of the Commonwealth of Australia, Mr. J.B. Chifley. Fellow citizens, the war is over. The Japanese government has accepted the terms of surrender imposed by the Allied nations, and hostilities will now cease. The reply by the Japanese government to the note sent by Britain, the United Nations, the USSR and China has been received and accepted by the Allied nations. On the 15th of August 1945, the Empire of Japan surrendered to the Allied forces, marking the end of the Second World War, in part as a response to the nuclear bombings in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Months before, on the 7th of May 1945, the German Third Reich unconditionally surrendered at the Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force at Reims in northeastern France. At this moment, let us offer thanks to God. Let us remember those whose lives were given that we may enjoy this glorious moment and may look forward to a peace which they have won for us. Over one million Australians served in the Australian Army, the Australian Navy and the Australian Air Force during the Second World War from a population of little more than seven million. 27,000 Australian lives were sacrificed, 23,000 were wounded, and 22,000 were prisoners of war. When the war ended in 1945, Australia had an army of just under 400,000, most of whom were serving overseas in the Southwest Pacific and Borneo. And now our men and women will come home. Our fighting men with battle honours thick upon them from every theatre of war. Australians stopped the Japanese in their drive south, just as they helped start the first march toward ultimate victory in North Africa. 
Australians fought in the battles of the air everywhere, and Australian seamen covered every ocean. They are coming home to a peace which has to be won, the United Nations Charter, or a world organisation is the hope of the world. And Australia has pledged the same activity in making it successful as she showed in the framing of it. Let us join together in the march of our nation to future greatness. The conclusion of the war also marked the end of national service for Australians and presented a huge logistical challenge for the government to get everyone home. But there was also opportunity for soldiers fighting in the Pacific to be involved in the occupation and disarming of Japan. For many, it would be a feather in the cap of their service, a reward for all the sacrifice, courage and loyalty from years at war. For young soldiers like James Blue Newell, it was too good an opportunity to pass up. Oh, well, we were going to live it up over there, weren't we? Plenty of sake. <laughs> Despite being only 19 years old, James Blue Newell was already a World War II veteran. Blue is a relaxed and no-nonsense infantryman, a country boy from Sleepy Bangalow, 15 minutes inland from Byron Bay in the Northern Rivers region of New South Wales. His military career began on the training ground in Cowra before being deployed to the jungles of New Guinea. He would go on to serve with the RAR for 25 years, fighting on the front line in Korea and Vietnam and retiring in 1970. But back in 1944, Blue's parents didn't approve of his desire to join the army. I had two brothers and a sister already in the military, so they weren't too happy about that. And both of them, the boys were overseas, you know, at that time. My sister was a nurse and sister, so she was a lieutenant. And then only once did we ever get together at home in Bangalore. And I said to them, when she comes in for breakfast, we'll all stand up and salute, which we did. And she said, sit down, you mugs. <laughs> As a teenager, Blue was an apprentice baker in Bangalore, just making ends meet. But he wanted something more. He sought adventure. Because most people were pretty poor, you know, especially when they, you know, joined the army and that sort of thing. They come from poor families, you know, but we were poor, you know. Everybody wanted to go. <laughs> That's why they put it in the infantry. We haven't got many brains. <laughs> And Sunday, everybody went to the bakehouse in the little towns like that. And any spare bread, you know, you could get a rolls or something like that. The bakers would give it to you, you know, you didn't have to pay for it. Blue's training culminated at the Jungle Warfare Centre in Canungra before he was posted to C Company, 2nd 3rd Machine Gun Battalion in Weewak, northern New Guinea, in mid-1945. Pretty rough country, <laughs> even though we were bushfellas. We were on top of a hill and you had all the, uh, i say, it was like a lantana, you know, a very heavy bush close to us, so they had no chance of getting through there. They had to come up one way and we had pickets every night, you know. You'd do patrols a lot and you'd see dead Japanese. Nobody ever buried them. While Blue was fighting in New Guinea, Duntroon officer graduate and recent platoon commander David Thompson was landing in Balak Papan, Borneo. My company 
bee company, like the whole battalion, were in the second wave. There'd been a huge bombardment by naval uh, guns beforehand, and Ballackpatton was absolutely knocked around. Things were burning. I didn't worry too much about myself. I was too worried that I mightn't do the job properly, but that wasn't worried about what would happen to me. Thompson led his men across the beach with no loss of life. But C Company, just to their side, lost six men. It was a brutal reminder that the war wasn't over yet. They'd gone into the jungle, and our job was then to find them, and that was the job until the war ended. And then we went out on a long patrol looking for people, and I did a foolish thing. I went out in front of the platoon to have a look, see which way we were going, because making sure. And it just happened. Uh, I saw a movement in the rainforest. I put out my rifle. I was carrying a rifle, not a pistol. And um, a stray Japanese shot at me and hit me in the arm. It was painful, but I could still walk. And I walked out. They didn't have to carry me. I was determined to walk out. Fortunately for Thompson, his wound wasn't life-threatening. But it meant he'd see out the final few weeks of the war in a hospital bed in the 2nd 12th Australian General Hospital in Balakpapan. While I was in hospital, um, the atomic bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Japan, and the war was over. Uh, at the end of the war, on the 15th of August, I was in hospital, and so I missed the few celebrations there was. Over in northern New Guinea, Blue was there to see the Japanese surrender. When they marched in to go on the barges, we were standing right near them, you know, because they had no weapons or anything. Our artillery, they had uh, flares and that sort of thing, and when that was signed, the, the, the war was definitely over. They fired it all towards the Japanese, and this Japanese coming down the white flag, he said, you Australians, he said, I know you're good sportsmen, and that sort of thing, but if you keep that up, hey, it's on again. <laughs> Because of secrecy surrounding the nuclear weapons program, the Australian Army was planning for a land invasion of Japan in August 1945, but were not prepared for an occupying role. Volunteers for the occupying force were instead sent to Moritai, where a new set of plans would be drafted and soldiers retrained. Moritai is a heavily forested northern island in what is now Indonesia, but then, was part of the Netherlands East Indies, about 3,200 kilometres south of Japan. It served as an important strategic base during the war, first held by the Japanese in 1942, and then taken by the Allies in 1944. In the months after the war ended, it would also become an important centre for the trials of Japanese war criminals by Allied military courts. They called for volunteers to go to Japan. And the 7th Division, which was at Dalek Patent, was to provide an infantry battalion, an artillery battery and various other supporting arms. And the infantry battalion was to be called the 65th Australian Infantry Battalion. I volunteered for that. On September 25, 1945, the 34th Australian Infantry Brigade was raised on Moritai, with Brigadier Robert Nimmo in charge. Sourced from within the 6th, 7th and 9th Divisions from World War II, the 34th Australian Infantry Brigade would be made up of three new battalions, 
the 65th, 66th and 67th battalions. The 34th Brigade would sit under the British Commonwealth Occupation Force, or BCOF, which was to operate in Japan during demobilisation and the transition from war to peace. Little did they know then, but the 34th Australian Infantry Brigade and the divisions thereunder would set the foundations of the RAR. But back in 1945, that seemed a long way off. It was a little island. We trained, played a lot of sport. And we're all on Moratoi, a lovely, beautiful, beautiful spot. And it's only a little island, but that was good there, that was right there. And swimming and catching fish and that. And they reckon there was Japanese still in the jungle there that hadn't surrendered, you know, soldiers who hadn't surrendered and that. Everybody just ignored them, I think, you know. Prior to 1945, Australia's peacetime army had been a part-time militia, which formed the basis for a voluntary, specially enlisted force. The regular component was merely a skeleton for the larger citizen army at times of war. The origins of the RAR can be traced back even further from an Australian Defence Committee study released in March 1944, concluding that International instability would preclude an early decision on post-war defence policy, although it would have to be laid on commitments within local, Commonwealth and collective security arrangements. In May 1945, on instruction from the War Cabinet, the Joint Planning Committee produced a report advising that Australia could no longer rely solely on Imperial Defence tenants for its security, especially after the bombing of Pearl Harbour in 1941 and the invasion of Darwin in 1942. But at the end of the war, Australian Prime Minister Chifley's focus was not on creating a permanent professional army. Rather, he was committed to managing the Japanese surrender and disarmament, the repatriation of prisoners, both Allied and Japanese, and the occupation of Japan. Soldiers selected for the mission were from the combat divisions in the Pacific, well motivated to fulfil their new role as conquering troops. But there was confusion about the terms of service and the constant pushback. There was a lot of argument going on at government level what the role of the occupation force would be, what part the British Commonwealth Occupation Force, BCOF it was called, would play, what area we'd go to, and it took a long time to organise that. And so one day uh, word went round to the officers to stay in their tents and the officers' lines were on the edge of a parade ground and the battalion, without the officers, and I think without most of the Sarm Ages, had put on a marvellous parade uh, and uh, asked for an explanation of why they were still Moratite. We were all very proud of them. There they were in this very, very soldierly fashion. They marched on with the band. It was called a mutiny, but of course it wasn't. It was just a, a protest at why we were being mucked about for so long in this tiny little crowded island. We were out on the beach somewhere. We knew we, days before they had all organised that they were all going on strike. And the minister for the army come up there and they had no officers. It was only warrant officers and the sergeants. And they marched the men on and the men marched as though they were outside Buckingham Palace, bunging it on, you know, and they were all on strike. 
On January the 11th, 1946, private soldiers and junior non-commissioned officers from the 34th Brigade went on strike. Dissatisfied with their vague new military contracts and the constant delays and misinformation about leaving for Japan, the soldiers wanted answers. But they were ringleaders of that, you know, where they were sent? Straight back to Australia. Discharged. Yeah. So they never went to Japan. On January 23, 1946, the Australian Deputy Prime Minister, Acting Minister for Defence and Minister for the Army, Mr F.M. Ford, visited the brigade on Moritai, giving assurances about soldiers' contracts and insisting the voyage to Japan wasn't far away. True to his word, on February the 5th, 1946, after months of waiting and frustration, the first boat set sail for Japan. The USS Stamford Victory departed first, and Blue was on board. But a lot of fellas, they got uh, seasickness, and they had to go up and sleep on the deck. They'd let them sleep on the deck. All those people had seasickness. I could sleep down below on the bunk, no worries at all. Then I found a bit of paper and left, left by some American soldier, I suppose, and said that these victory ships in a big storm would crack in half because they were welded that way, you know. And it had happened, you know. And next thing, out off the coast of China, we hit the biggest storm. <laughs> I was watching the strews coming down the water. Just down the third, she was dipping, you know. Yeah. I was thinking, oh, I hope it doesn't break in half. <laughs> the advance party of 34th Brigade travelled in the USS Stamford Victory and arrived in Japan on the 13th of February, 1946. Soldiers were confronted by the sight of a devastated nation. Remnants of ships from the Imperial Japanese Navy sunken in the harbour and the scorched shoreline of what was once the largest naval base in Japan. For those on board, it was a conflicting feeling. While it was triumphant to witness the real sight of victory, it was also a reminder of the trauma of war and everything that had been lost. We had no idea what the Japanese reaction would be to occupation. Uh, they're a very proud race, and we had no idea what their reaction would be. For Blue, there was only one thing on his mind. We were the first there, so <laughs> we all got off. You weren't supposed to, but we all did. We couldn't wait you know, to get a taste of that sake. <laughs> The primary objective of the Beekoff was to ensure the implementation of the terms of the unconditional surrender. The task of exercising the military government over Japan was the responsibility of the US forces. The Beekoff was located in southern Honshu, Hiroshima Prefecture. Much of the southern part of the Beekoff area had been badly damaged by bombing, particularly in Kure and Hiroshima, which had been devastated by the atomic bomb. The 34th Brigade was divided into three areas of unit responsibility. The 65th Battalion was to be responsible for the eastern area, the 66th for the centre, and the 67th Battalion was given the western area. And then they took us off and put us on trucks and took us out to, in the suburbs of Hiroshima, a place called Kaitaichi. It was winter time and we just came from New Guinea Snow was everywhere, and they had 44-gallon drums and big pieces of wood, and, you know, you lit that in the night time and just to warm it, and they were just, looked like 
either workers' huts who worked in those factories. There was a stack of them. Of course, that's the way Japanese did it with their factories. You know, they used to live live there on on the job. You know, and so when you got up in the morning, you were covered in soot. Many of the occupation duties in 1946 involved activities designed to reinforce upon the Japanese the lesson of their defeat. The key assignments were to assist in demilitarization and disposal of Japanese war installations and armaments, to safeguard the Allied installations and equipment, to give military protection to British Commonwealth civil missions engaged in selecting goods and equipment for reparations, to maintain internal security in Japan and to provide military backing to the United States military government in the Beekhoff area. We had a job to disarm the Japanese nation. That was the occupation's job. And I remember we collected arms. We had to take all the policemen wore swords, for instance, as a part of their dress. We uh, made them hand over all their swords. We collected all the weapons that we could find and these were put into barges and dumped in the sea. So our first job was to disarm the Japanese. As it happened, we had absolutely no problem. They bowed and obeyed. Once the emperor spoke, they obeyed. And that's why all those soldiers surrendered in all those islands and that, without much trouble. Once they knew it was the emperor, because he was everything to them, he was God, you know. We had no trouble with him at all, you know. They'd bow and all that sort of thing if they come into the camp. Alongside practical outcomes, there was also a requirement for the Beekhoff to maintain and enhance the standing of the British Commonwealth forces in the eyes of the Japanese and the rest of the world, particularly in Asia. The Japanese referred to the Australians as Goshu Jin, meaning Man of the South, and avoided the connotations of the term occupying forces by referring to them as Shinshugun, meaning a forward element. Each week, a census of civilian attitudes was conducted within a battalion area. It soon was apparent that while most Japanese were indifferent or resigned to the presence of the occupation forces, some regarded them as good. The Japanese cooperated with the requirements of the occupation and in return, they were free from unwarranted interference with individual liberty and property rights. In accordance with General Douglas MacArthur's decrees, historical, cultural and religious objects and shrines were protected and preserved, and, subject to the requirements of military security, freedom of speech, press, religion and assembly were allowed. They were, they were still proud, you know, uh, very proud people and very honest people. As concerns about any Japanese revolt diminished, attention for the Beekhoff turned to other domestic tasks, such as trying to shut down a burgeoning black market. With the country decimated by war and poverty rife, army rations, equipment and clothing were much sought after. Mainly they wanted food, and they wanted like honey or syrup, and if you could get hold of it, it was worth a lot of money, you know. And sugar, they hadn't had sugar for years. Any Beekhoff soldier caught dealing in the black market was disciplined. Some court-martialed and sent back to Australia. You could be charged under the army regulations, yeah, they could charge you, yeah. As well as the black market, there was the challenge of patronising a large Korean population who had migrated during the war 
and were used by the Imperial Army for cheap labour. After the war, there was a lot of unrest amongst the Koreans. So it was decided to repatriate them back to Korea. And uh, special trains were laid on, and the train was stocked at Fukuyama, full of Koreans and families and children. It was while supervising the repatriation of Korean civilians that something quite remarkable happened to platoon commander David Thompson. Sitting in the cabin with some of my diggers, and a soldier came to me one day and said, Sir, we've got a problem in the next carriage. There's a girl having a baby. There's no doctor and no medical orderly. So, having been brought up on a farm, I knew about delivering calves and sheep and that calves. I went along and helped with the delivery. Someone had to do something. I happened to be most experienced. And then I was 21. Throughout the first year of occupation, roles and responsibilities across the 34th Infantry Brigade under the Beekoff varied. For David Thompson and the 65th Battalion, that included enforcing Japanese compliance with the directives on disarmament and demilitarization. And in April 1946, supervising the first general elections in post-war Japan. For the 66th Battalion, their tour started with guarding various tunnels and dumps in Kure and Kure Wharf, carrying out reconnaissance and security patrols on the various islands of the Inland Sea, as well as guarding and assisting with the transfer and disposal of the tons of ammunition, explosives and poisonous gases. For Blue and the 67th Battalion, there was the role of running the repatriation centres, ensuring customs, quarantine and medical procedures were carried out. And the incoming Japanese were made aware of the presence of the occupying forces. There were also patrols into the western and northern sectors of Hiroshima Prefecture, known as Mob Reki, which involved surveillance of demonstrations by Koreans and Japanese workers protesting about their poor working conditions. After a few months with the military police, Blue ended up running the mess hall in Kai Tai Chi. Because I had 24 Japanese working for me. They waited on the soldiers. Was it a bit of a change? <laughs> Only the sergeants get waited on the Australian Army and the officers. But over there, everybody got waited on. They'd clean up after. They had their breakfast, the soldiers, and their dinner, and their tea at night, you know. The, the fellows who working for me, they seemed all right, you know. Due to a shortfall of servicemen in 1946, the 34th Brigade needed to find new volunteers for the occupation force, and recruiting from the population was reintroduced. There was also a new batch of graduates from the Royal Military College Duntroon. This included 18-year-old Alan Morrison. Well, I was born in Sydney, in a suburb called Five Dock, in 1927. I was the second child, second son, to be born. Like many of his peers, Alan Morrison had a family lineage in the Australian Army and was fascinated by the armed forces. I was always very interested in my father and his wartime experiences. And then when the war broke out for the First World War, my father was itching to get away to the war. In fact, he did enlist and was hauled out of the services by his father because he had put up his age by two years 
and my grandfather said, you're not going to the war at that. My father was greatly disappointed, and when two years was up, he had probed and pushed my grandfather so much that he gave way and he allowed him to go off to the war in 1916. What happened in the First World War was very much on my mind. And then I went off to Duntroon when they selected me. Founded in Canberra in the ACT on the 27th of June 1911 by the Governor-General Lord Dudley, Duntroon Military College is the primary officer training school for the Australian Army. Duntroon sits at the foot of Mount Pleasant and is comparable to the United Kingdom's Royal Military Academy in Sandhurst and the United States Military Academy at West Point. Initially, the college offered a four-year course, during which the first two years focused on civil subjects and the last two years focused on military subjects. There was also military-specific training, including physical training, drill, signalling and weapon handling. For Alan Morrison, Duntroon would be the beginning of a very distinguished career. He would become Major General Alan Morrison, AO, DSO, MBE, raising nine RAR prior to the Vietnam War. He was ultimately awarded an Officer of the Order of Australia for his services to the Australian Army after his retirement in 1981. Alan Morrison's son, Lieutenant General David Morrison, would serve in the RAR as well, becoming Chief of Australian Army from 2011 to 2015 and Australian of the Year in 2016. Back at officer training in Duntroon in 1945, for students like Morrison, it was all about learning the ropes and setting yourself up for success along with your classmates. It was, again, the close camaraderie that existed between the class that gave you a great stimulus to go ahead. And working together, uh, the humour, the living at 24 hours a day. And, you know, when you're young at that age, you, you stay in the click-type situation. And I've got friends that I still have them today. As we'll hear throughout this podcast, the camaraderie, friendship and bond formed between service people and the RAR is unparalleled. It is always offered something else, something bigger, almost impossible to replicate in civilian life. For many officers, these relationships were formed at the Royal Military College Duntroon and cemented in the theatre of war. In late 1945, with the war well and truly over, Alan Morrison and his classmates had to bide their time before they saw any action overseas. In fact, it finished on my birthday, the 15th of August, 1945. I hope there's going to be a career for me <laughs> now that the war is over. One of those sorts of juvenile type things. Back in Japan, the Beekoff was busy trying to reinforce the lesson of the defeat upon the Japanese people. While the Beekoff presence was very influential after the war, there was perhaps no bigger reminder to the public than the devastated cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You could see these people and all the, like as though it was like porridge, you know, these are the poor people who survived and all that burnt all on their faces, you know, the women and the kids and men and everything, you know. They must have been a long way out. 
they weren't anywhere near to where the bomb went off. They killed everything in the mile radius, you know. The nuclear bombing of Japan has left a complicated legacy, something that's not lost on either Blue or David Thompson. Let's hope it never happens again. That's all I can say. It's terrible. It was terrible as far as I'm concerned. What you've seen, you know. Some went to the hospital. I never went there. They were still in those hospitals, still half alive, you know. As soon as we'd finished in Borneo, we were to get together again uh, with the rest of the 7th Division who were there and prepare to go north to the Philippines and Japan. And no one was looking forward to that. If we'd invaded Japan, we would have got horrendous casualties. It would have been very difficult indeed. All the Japanese would have fought. And I... I'm sorry for the people who lost their lives, but it saves thousands of other casualties, both ours and the Japanese. While the 34th Brigade continued under the Beekhoff in Japan, back home, progress was slow in establishing the Royal Australian Regiment. A report produced by the General Staff in 1946 presented the need to raise five standard divisions but was rejected because its annual cost was too high. As a stopgap measure, it was instead decided to adopt a non-permanent organisation known as the Interim Army. By the 15th of February 1947, the strength of the Interim Army was 36,790, including 10,436 new recruits who had enlisted for a two-year engagement. Through this period, the Army went through numerous name changes, from the Interim Army, back to the Citizen Military Force, CFM, then the Permanent Military Forces, PMF. The plan for a post-war defence force was finally approved and announced on the 4th of June 1947, and named the Australian Regular Army, ARA. By the end of 1947, the flow of recruits was so low that the battalions of 34th Brigade were reduced to barely a third of their full strength by the middle of 1948. The 34th Brigade was only able to carry out tasks because the occupation duties in Japan were going so well and required fewer men. In 1948, it was time for Blue and David Thompson to go back to Australia and for new soldiers like Alan Morrison, finally, it was time to set sail for Japan. We uh, got onto the uh, HMAS Canimbla and sailed to Japan. It was one of the troop ships that went up and down. And I went and I became a platoon commander in 66th Battalion. Now, in Japan, there was really nothing for us to do. They'd cleared out all the occupation. They, they picked up all the enemy that they wanted to do. By the time we got there, they'd already covered the whole part of the areas which was, had been allotted to the Australian forces. Everything was over. The black market was coming down. In mid-1948, the duties of the Beekhoff had become far more routine and symbolic rather than practical. One of the continuing roles was to provide guards in Tokyo at various locations, including the Imperial Palace. Large crowds of Japanese and other occupation force members often turned out to watch the occasions and be impressed by the drill and bearing of the guards. 
we were putting on a demonstration of our might, <laughs> rather, a demonstration of might or a demonstration of the military from an Australian point of view. Uh, there was no Japanese military. Uh, I mean, they were all, they'd been finished. Towards the end of 1948, the 65th and 66th Battalions returned to Australia and were initially designated as ARA Battalions. The 67th Battalion would stay in Japan and continue to serve as part of the BKOF until 1950. After a period of routine leave, David Thompson was elevated to the rank of captain and brought into the headquarters of the BKOF. I was told I was going to go to the headquarters of the British Commonwealth Occupation Force, which was on an island called Itajima in the Kure Harbour. And that was very interesting. It was a tri-service Army-Navy Air Force headquarters, and quite large. It ran the whole of the British Commonwealth Occupation Force. And uh, that was very good. I'd never been on a big headquarters. I had no idea what it was like. I'd never worked with naval officers. My boss, in fact, was an Air Force officer. And that was a very broadening experience. For David Thompson, 1948 marked the conclusion of his time in Japan, but only the beginning of a glittering career in the RAR. Thompson would go on to become company commander in Korea with A Company, 1 RAR, earning a military cross. While having different incarnations during the Korean War, Thompson would officially raise the 4th Battalion RAR in February 1964. Thompson then became the Regimental Colonel of the Royal Australian Regiment and, ultimately, a Brigadier, retiring from the Army in 1971. Everyone else in the Army exists to help the infantry. Field Marshal Wavell said, all wars are won in the end by the infantry. That's true. So it's the core of the army. Thompson married and had three sons and eventually welcomed grandchildren. He also had a successful career in federal politics with the Australian National Party, representing the division of Leichhardt in North Queensland. His campaign was run on the platform Fighting for the North. Thompson died in 2013, aged 88. We've won some of them lost others, but there are lots of good memories as well as the sad ones. And on the whole, the good memories prevail. The comradeship, the friends one's made, the people you know all over the world almost. I've been a very lucky man and had a, a great life. And I've got a wonderful wife and family and grandchildren and living in this beautiful place. What more can you ask? Through its operation in Japan after World War II, the Bikoff played a significant role in ensuring the safe transition to peace in Japan. This included disarming, demilitarization, and military control, repatriating 750,000 Japanese surrendered personnel and other foreign nationals, extensive patrolling by air, sea, and land to uncover smuggling and black marketing, and the provision of expert advice on engineering, town planning, and assistance in reconstruction. When the 65th and 66th Battalions travelled back to Australia, they were initially labelled the 1st Infantry Battalion City of Sydney's own regiment and the 1st Infantry Battalion Royal Melbourne Regiment. But with the 1949 British Royal visit in mind, 
it was suggested that it would be appropriate for the 65th Battalion to become the 1st Battalion, King George VI's Australian Rifle Regiment, the 66th Battalion, the 1st Battalion, Queen Elizabeth's Australian Foot Guards, and the 67th Battalion, the 1st Battalion, Princess Margaret's Australian Infantry Regiment. Ultimately, it was decided to adopt a regimental system, similar to the British Army, and the units were to be numbered sequentially as part of one regiment. On the 23rd of November 1948, the three battalions were designated as the 1st, 2nd and 3rd Battalions of the Australian Regiment, or AR, with application made for a royal title. The title Royal was granted by His Majesty King George VI and announced on the 10th of March 1949. After years of delays and hold-ups, the Royal Australian Regiment, or RAR, Australia's first regular regiment of infantry, was born. For James Blue Newell, after two years out of the army, it was time to go back. Being an ex-serviceman, we went straight to a battalion. Well, I went straight to two battalion of Pakapanyul because I didn't have to do any training because being an ex-serviceman. So we were lucky. We didn't have to do all that silly rot. Regimental colours were presented to the battalions, but because of its new status, the regiment did not adopt any existing battle honours. The design of the regimental badge was made from a number of suggestions when Major K.B. Thomas of 1RAR suggested the motto, Duty First. As fate would have it, both Blue and Alan Morrison wound up with the 2nd Battalion in Pakapanyal in Victoria in 1949. But it wasn't the most enjoyable of places. Freezing cold, terribly cold, and way out in the bush, you know. <laughs> the Second World War, despite its incredible tragedies and loss of life, gave young soldiers a platform to prove their worth in the theatre of war, to exhibit courage, honour and sacrifice at a time like no other. By contrast, the period that followed the war was challenging and laborious for ambitious officers like Alan Morrison. But something else was coming, and it was coming sooner than anyone imagined. On active service. Sunday, June the 25th, 1950. North Korean Communist Armed Forces this morning invaded the Republic of South Korea with tanks and artillery at 11 places along the border and at three points on the east coast. The President of South Korea, Dr. Syngman Rhee, made an appeal for aid to General MacArthur in a telephone call to Tokyo shortly after the invasion began. The Korean War would be the first major test of the post-war Australian Army and that of the Royal Australian Regiment. But at the outbreak of war, the RAR found themselves understrength, under-equipped and unprepared for war. Before any Australian troops could go to Korea, training had to ramp up again. Three RAR was already in Japan and needed supplementation before it could go to Korea. And so they picked people who had been trained in the other two battalions, one RAR and two RAR, to supplement 3RAR to make it a full battalion. I was selected from 2RAR to go to Japan, to eventually to go to Korea. For infantrymen like Blue, 
The outbreak of war meant travelling back to Japan to join up with three RAR, who were still serving under the Beekoff. We went in that big, beautiful big camp, built specially for the Occupation Army, and uh, we did our train there. Then we went up the way in the mountains where the Japanese Army used to train and the, and the British Army trained there, and that was the Australian Army because the British had all gone home by then. We went up there and trained up there, you know. While on a training break with some new recruits to 3RAR, Blue travelled back to Hiroshima, where something quite remarkable happened. Some of the young soldiers said, Blue, you were here before. You were in the Occupation Army. You know all about Hiroshima. And, of course, naturally all those fellows going to Korea and never been in Japan all wanted to see... Everybody wants to see Hiroshima, which is natural. And uh, they said, "Will you take us down. I said, yeah, no worries at all, I'd Took him down, we jumped on the train, you know, where to leave and that sort of thing. And this fellow in a suit walked up to me and he said, G'day, Blues, son. <laughs> now, everybody else, Javanese, would know to call me Blue, because that's what the Javanese used to call me, Kotaiki, Blue, son. That's Mr. Blue. I said, G'day, mate. I said, Where do I know you? He said, uh, Me, Spud, son. He said, I used to peel, peel the spuds out of Kotaiki. And I said, blimey, I was thinking to myself, he's doing all right with his suit on and everything. I said, what do you do now, Spud? He said, I'm in charge of the refreshment room on Hiroshima Station upstairs. He said, come on, I'll give you a, free, uh, a beer, you know. I said, well, we'll pay for it. He said, no, you won't. So we got, they have big jugs like Germany, you know, the big jugs of beer. And uh, I said, gee, you're doing all right now, Spud? He said, no, Blue. He said, oh, I'd soon be back with the Australians. What a recommendation for an occupation army. Because <laughs> our fellas couldn't help mucking around, you know, having jokes with people and that's what they, you know. They were never cruel to people, you know. I mean, to, for them to work for us and to work for a Japanese boss, oh, I know which was the best job, <laughs> working for us. <laughs> the Japanese are pretty strict, you know. Wedged between the end of World War II and the beginning of the Vietnam War, The Korean War is known by many as the Forgotten War. But for those who were there, there's nothing forgetful about what they did and what they saw. I had a platoon. I was in 4 Platoon B Company. I was the platoon commander of that platoon. That's where, near there, I got the Battle of the Broken Bridge. My ten men and I, we were walking further up the hill, saw some North Korean soldiers, and I, I just made a signal for them to put the weapons down on the ground and surrender. Behind that particular group of North Koreans was a whole range of another three companies. And they began shooting over the heads of the North Koreans in the front and towards us. I had 10 men, I think it was, 10 men I had there. So a 10 against 250, not, not very good odds. Duty First is presented by the Royal Australian Regiment Foundation and the Department of Veterans Affairs. Special thanks to the Royal Australian Regiment Association for its support and to all of our guests. This episode is written and produced by Tim Russell and hosted by Paul Larter, with audio production and theme by Slade Gibson. Archive interviews are from the University of New South Wales and the Australian War Memorial. For more information on the Royal Australian Regiment Foundation, please visit 
rarfoundation.org.au. 